Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBurge on Faith Radio. Good morning uh, to you on this Friday, the 20th of August. Um, prayers continuing this morning. I mean, our the headline news this morning, it, just scrolling through, it doesn't really matter which source you turn to today. You're going to see two or three topics dominating the headlines. Um, one of those topics is going to be Afghanistan. Uh, lots of threads there we could pull. I think that my encouragement today is to be praying, uh, praying continuously for the people of Afghanistan. The U.S. military is stepping up evacuation flights, but the reporting from the streets of Kabul and outlying areas, uh, are you'll find them simultaneously maddening and heartbreaking. Um, how bad are things? How How bad are things if you have reached the point where you are willing to pass your infant over a fence line to a complete stranger with the hopes that they will be put on an airplane and taken to an unknown people in unknown parts of the world and you will likely never see them again? How bad is it where you live? Um, I think that's the, that's probably the mama heart and the, and the daddy heart question this morning. Russia, China, um, and other, you know, nefarious actors around the world are already functioning in full relationship to the Taliban, who, by the way, not only have uh, all the U.S. weapons that we gave to the Afghan military and Afghan security forces over the past 20 years, um, but they've also been flying our U.S. military jets out of the base that we built and then abandoned. Uh, Where are those planes going? Whose hands are they ending up in and how will they be used? Well, the Pentagon said yesterday we're going to have to worry about that sometime down the road because right now we have to figure out how we're going to get our people out of Afghanistan. Um, Lots of questions that apparently were not answered in advance of the U.S. drawdown and withdrawal from Afghanistan. President Biden gave an extended interview. He's given one interview. It was an extended interview to ABC's George Stephanopoulos. Uh, we're not even going to try to dissect it. I do commend that you watch it, that you pray for our nation, pray for our fellow Americans who are trapped, pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being hunted down house to house, pray for the place of America in the world, pray for the women and the girls, pray for the Afghanis who supported and helped us over the past 20 years, pray for journalists, pray for a miracle. There is one um, inspiring dramatic story of one Afghan officer who fought with U.S. forces and who has been rescued. One of the questions you are probably going to ask when you read the article and see the photograph of Mohammed Khalid Wardak, who is a high-profile Afghan national police officer who um, is is credited with many, many, many hero- heroic deeds on behalf of American personnel over the past 20 years. 
one of the things you're going to ask yourself is, where are the girls? You're going to ask yourself that question when you see the pictures of the people on the tarmac, in the airplanes, um, at the perimeter of the airport. Among those who are being evacuated, you are going to ask yourself, where are the girls? Let's be praying today for a miracle. First up this morning, we have Bruce Ashford. He is a senior fellow at the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology. He and I are going to talk about, um, I think it's a very provocative question. Has politics replaced religion in America? And when we ask that question, you know, here's one way that I've kind of visualized it. If you were handed a, a document and you were supposed to check off the boxes and under under the political affiliation, there were words that you have historically thought about as religious designations. How would you feel about that? What if the reverse were true? What if under religious designations, there were words that you have historically considered as associated with politics? How would you feel about that? And what would you check? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. walk-up music makes me happy because it means that Bruce Ashford is back. He is a senior fellow at the Kirby Lang Center for Public Theology. You can find him at bruceashford.net. Bruce, good morning. Good morning. It's great to be back on the show, Carmen. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. Okay, so I was reading at bruceashford.net how politics has replaced religion in America. And so let me just tee that up as the conversation uh, first off here this morning. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think everyone who's been, even has a modicum of, of breath and consciousness has noticed that in the past five or ten years that um, American politics has, you know, become kind of a never-ending carnival of wedgies, just kind of a combination between a Hollywood movie, a war, and a circus. And uh, politics tends to be, you know, undertaken with the sweated fervor of a, of a revival meeting. And our country's divided and polarized. Badly, and I think uh, one of the keys to that is that people don't look to God for salvation anymore; they look to politics. Yeah, I, one of the thoughts that I had as I was reading this piece was, you know, where do I expect my help to come from, and do I expect it to come from the hills? Do I expect it to come from the chariots? Do I expect it to come from, you know, some sort of empowered group of political or mil- military leader, um, or do I expect it to come from God? And when we start looking for uh, political saviors, we get ourselves into all kinds of trouble. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> politics is intended to help, and uh, it's, a, it's a, a realm of culture ordained to God. So politics is good, not bad. It's corrupted, it's twisted, it's misdirected, like every other realm of life. Um, but what it can't do is it can't provide the level of help that Americans are looking for it to provide right now. And uh, it's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. It's not the same guy as the uh, tennis shoes. He didn't invent the Chuck Taylors. Um, but he is well known for arguing that, you know, I'm going to use a fancy phrase here. Uh, it's his phrase, that Americans look for salvation from within the, quote, imminent frame, unquote. So what he means by that 
is that we tend to um, manage life without any to use the name and talk to church and so forth. Um, <clears throat> modern medicine, for example, has replaced the need to, uh, in our minds, pray for, to, to God for healing. Modern technology and comforts have replaced the need to, to look uh, to God for some sort of comfort in life. And so we've just kind of gotten out of the habit of looking to him. And in the political realm, we do the same thing. We just, uh, um, a lot of the political ideologies today are, are crafted, uh, progressivism, socialism especially, but uh, I think nationalism too, certain forms of nationalism, um, want to provide the things that only God can provide. We want politics those things for us. And um, it's never going to happen. Um, the uh, these ideologies assume that society's managers, or politicians, or bureaucrats, or social social scientists, or psychotherapists, that they can that they are good enough, good-willed enough, and smart enough to plan society for us, that we can kind of burn down our cultural institutions, our institutions of law and order education and so forth and construct new ones that'll give us a kind of a utopia and that'll just never happen. Every time it's happened historically um, that we've tried to uh, provide a heaven on earth, it ended up in, in bloodshed and, and uh, divisive politics. We're going to take a very brief break. When we come back, Bruce Ashford and I will continue this conversation. I'm going to ask him a, co- a question about common ground. What does it mean to have common ground that is maybe historically uh, established or established with a a Christian heritage in mind? And what does it mean to find common ground today? That question up next with Bruce Ashford. We'll be right back. Continuing our conversation now with Dr. Bruce Ashford, you can find him at the Kirby Lang Center. You can also find him at BruceAshford.net. Um, Bruce, one of the points that you make in this piece, and again, I'm I'm reading from How Politics Has Replaced Religion in America. You can find it at BruceAshford.net. Um, one of the points that you make in here is a, is a conversation about common ground. And I thought, as I as I read through that, I'm thinking to myself, there's a necessity of common ground. There's an assumption that I make about common ground that may often be wrong. Um, And then there is a real need to figure out how to find common ground going forward. Yeah, you know, for for so many years, for hundreds of years, thousands of years in in the um, common ground that we had, even more than uh, cultural, was uh, that we believed that there was a, a moral framework, that God has given a set of moral laws, and uh, even people who disagreed disagreed within that framework. And so when we argue politically, we would argue toward the truth based on the, basically the same set of uh, moral laws. But that, that um, moral laws has been jettisoned. It's been thrown away by so many Americans now. So that when we argue, um, we're not arguing together toward truth. We're arguing basically just against each other, and we tend to um, uh, think the worst of each other. To give an example – um, with uh, the transgender issue, um, you know, for millennia, for thousands of years, all humans have agreed that there have been um, that there are two uh, genders, and that gender is based on somebody's biological sex, how they're born, 
and uh, what sort of body God gave them when they were born. But uh, so many Americans now don't believe in that. They don't believe that there's a God who uh, made uh, people the way they ought to be. And so when I line up arguments historically or biologically about gender and sex, um, that's just kind of discarded by folks in the other camp. They don't care. Um, Who cares what science says? Who cares what history says? We're going to recreate humanity, and humans have unbounded potential. They're endlessly, you know, malleable. And uh, it it just, there's there's very little common ground, and we need to find a way to regain some common ground. And I I think, so, you know, this one issue that you highlight, challenge, issue, I don't even know how I'm supposed to frame the whole LGBTQ conversation anymore. Um, it, It dominates many of the conversations today, and yet it is not a conversation dominated by a worldview based on a moral order uh, based in the reality that you have just described. And so how do, so how do we sort of refine our footing? You know, as a Christian, how do I, how do I appeal for a common ground based in reality? Yeah. So that's a great question. And I I think one answer is that there's no quick way of doing it. Uh, This is this uh, festering wound in our nation has been um, has been going on for decades now, and it won't get fixed in a year. But I think one of the things that we can do is we can show people that the moral order that God has given us is one uh, that allows us to flourish. And uh, in America, when we talk about freedom, a lot of Americans talk about freedom as just being free from all restraints, being free from all moral law. And one of the things we can do is to show people that true freedom is not freedom from as much as it is freedom for. In other words, God has freed us for a certain way of life within boundaries, within the boundaries of his moral law, within the boundaries of the way he created things and ordered them. And um, the freedom to live in that manner, the way God expects us to live, tells us to live, beckons us to live, uh, when we live in that manner, then we can flourish as humans. And I, I think there's different ways of showing people that the things that we want most badly in life can really only be secured by God and by living uh, within the order that he's prescribed. Okay, so maybe I lean into a conversation. And again, I think that one of the um, resources that you have written that's really helpful in all of this is your book, Letters to an American Christian. So if you are listening right now and you're like, I really would like to be equipped to have the kinds of conversations that Bruce is talking about, but I wouldn't even know where to start. Um, Letters to an American Christian is just a really fine engagement tool, um, both to prepare ourselves for the conversations of the day, um, but then also, I think, as conversation starters with one another about the assumptions that we make about the culture in which we live Um, and particularly the assumptions that we make about the common ground upon which we stand, because those assumptions do not hold up in many cases. Okay, so having said that, um, I can't assume that you necessarily believe what I believe about God. I cannot assume that you necessarily believe what I believe about the Bible. I cannot assume that we both see time or creation or work or love or marriage or children Um, or heaven and hell, or life itself the same way. And I think that getting to the place, Bruce, where we're asking that question of ourselves, what assumptions am I making 
that mm-hmm. may or may not be true. I think right. that is a helpful starting point for a lot of Christians today. Yeah, I think I think you're exactly you hit the nail on the head there because um, even those of us who you know listen to faith radio, right? We have Christian commitments. We we do have a lot of uh, you know common ground in some ways. Many of us have bought into uh, some of the um, we've bought into our secular age. We have our ways of thinking have been influenced and even dominated by Hollywood, um, by uh, consumer culture. Um, and so our eyes are, are actually turned away from Christ. But one of the things we can do, one of the things that we have in common with everybody in this world is we have common desires, desires that God has given us, desires for happiness, desire to know the truth about the world the way it is, uh, desire for beauty. Um, all of these things, desire for our guilt to be absolved, uh, you know, the things that we've done wrong for, for, for those things to be forgiven. And maybe we can start with common desires and try to find ways of showing uh, our, our neighbors that the, the common desires that we all have can only really be fulfilled by God and can't be fulfilled anything on this earth. I think that is really helpful. You know, what do I know I have in common with my neighbors, um, even if I have no idea where they are um, and all the assumptions that I might make based on observation um, could be wrong. So, uh, you know, clearly they have a desire to live in proximity to where I have a desire to live. So, I mean, you know, even starting with a desire for living in a particular place, um, living in a particular way. A desire for beauty, I think, is really helpful, that that connection between creation and creator. Um, a desire for peace. I think that, you know, you're pointing out a desire, uh, a mutual desire um, for guilt to be absolved. Like, there's a, there's a way to get to a conversation um, about the reality of sin, but that's just not where we start. We start with, a, with the common desire that we have um, and I think, you know, the common desire that we have for our kids to have a place where they can flourish may be, may be the most common desire among um, our neighbors today, and that's certainly a good starting place as well. Yeah, it is. And if you're out, you're out there in Radio Land right now and, and you want some reading to do that will help you in this respect, uh, C.S. Lewis, the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia series, wrote a book called Mere Christianity, and I would recommend that for any uh, thoughtful Christian. Um, short chapters that were originally given as uh, radio broadcasts in England or World War II, and they show how to reason from our desires uh, toward God being the only one who can fulfill them. And then a second um, uh, book I'd recommend is called The Reason for God by Tim Keller. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It's kind of an updated version of C.S. Lewis for 21st century Americans. I recommend those two books. And then uh, my little book, uh, Letters to an American Christian, it's very easy to read, and it's uh, uh, it's politically angled. It's meant to show a conservative Bible-believing Christian how to make the case uh, for the, the kind of uh, political solutions that we think are best. I, this is all so helpful. Um, all of that would be great reading. So thank you, um, Bruce, as always, so much. Good starting place for you. Uh, if you're listening right now, is BruceAshford.net. Check out the article that Bruce and I have been discussing today. Um, there's a there's a I would describe it as a complimentary piece in entitled Faith has literally always belonged in politics uh, posted there as well. Good conversational fodder for the day ahead. Bruce, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. You guys can visit Bruce at bruceashford.net. We'll be right back. 
All right. Um, thank you for the community gathered this morning. Thank you uh, to a, a friend who has texted in an observation about my conversation with Bruce and the importance of building relationships and leaning into as opposed to shying away from um, people who are different than us. And so, you know, looking at not only who's in my circle or sphere of influence, but who into whose life I should be um, pressing, like intentionally pressing. And then um, thank you uh, for the question to get to say that C.S. Lewis's uh, recommended reading or the recommended reading by C.S. Lewis that Bruce lifted up was Mere Christianity. And that's M-E-R-E, Mere Christianity. It is, um, well, let me just say this. I can't imagine what it might be like for me to do on live radio the kind of content that C.S. Lewis did that became the book Mere Christianity. Because let me just tell you, you you and I would both have to get up and put on our smarty pants. Um, it is... It is really, really good, but it will also be an indication to you of just how much the vocabulary, um, as well as the assumptions that you can make about a listening audience, um, how much of that has changed in the years since those were radio addresses by C.S. Lewis in the era of World War II. All right, Dan DeWitt is up next. You know him from Theolatte.com. He joins us from time to time with his Weekend Worldview Reader. Today, we're going to talk about the God of nature and nature of God. And, and then I'm also going to ask him, is there such a thing as a Christian telescope? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Like you, I know many families who've experienced divorce and remarriage. I know kids who've been adopted. And I know kids who are still healing from a splintered relationship with mom or dad. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. If you have a blended family or perhaps one of your kids is adopted, it's important to remember that people don't heal overnight. A relational upheaval will create some scars on a child's heart that can't be ignored. It doesn't mean that blended families or adopted kids aren't a gift from God. They just take special care. Regardless of how good things are, your child may experience grief because of a lost relationship. Remember that God is grafting together a new and beautiful family right now. But healing takes time. Want more parenting help from Mark Gregston? Find encouragement through articles, books, and more at parentingtodaysteens.org. wait for the uh, the break at the, you know, three quarters after the hour, quarter till the hour of, to do something, just go do it now and listen to us while you're doing My it. My fault. not I going to be a break. the wrong button. <laughs> it's okay. Our button pusher might have, pushed, might have pushed a button early. Dan DeWitt joins us now. You know him from Theolatte.com and Cedarville University. Dan, welcome back. It is great to be back. How are you doing, Carmen? I am, uh, well, you know what? I am well. It is well with my soul. God is good. Yeah, I'm going to just go Amen. with that this morning. Yeah. Yep. Um, all right. So I was reading at Theolatte.com a piece you have posted uh, called The God of Nature and the Nature of God. And um, I think that there's a scene in Bruce Almighty where uh, Jim Carrey is pleading, give me a sign, give me a sign. And he's behind this truck that's filled with signs. 
Um, uh-huh. And so I thought I would offer that as one um, uh, one uh, addition to the opening paragraph. Yeah, that would be a good 90s, I think, 90s reference, right? I don't know. Long time ago. My era, yeah. for sure. Tell us what um, what are the signs that we're missing and uh, and then how how are we to engage with the God of nature and what does it tell us about the nature of God? Yeah, so that was the the title of the blog post comes from a sermon that I preached this last Sunday um, on Romans chapter one. And in Romans one, I think we see both of those things, the, the God of nature, God is creator. But then we also see the nature of God. And so Paul says that the the heavens are declaring wrath, which is, you know, very a stark contrast to what King David says in the Old Testament, that the heavens are declaring glory. And so when we read Paul's words, we should kind of think back to Psalm 19 and think, well, why is it that they're declaring wrath? And the difference is really a matter of perspective. So for David, who believed in God, he looked up and saw glory. Paul's talking about people in Romans 1 who reject the Creator, and therefore the heavens are sending a message about God's wrath. And Paul describes the nature of God that we can see in creation is that he's powerful, his eternal power, and then Paul also says his divine nature. So creation's saying something about God, and we all have thought about these kind of things before. You know, we look out and think, man, whatever led to the universe had to be really powerful. And in many ways, that's creation doing its job. We recognize there's a powerful source behind it, but then also, we have a certain way that we're inclined to live, that some things are right and wrong. And so heaven's also speaking about God's divine nature. And as Paul says in Romans 2, God's written his moral law on our hearts. So these are signs that point us to God. But often, you know, it comes down to how we're interpreting the world around us. And in our natural state, we interpret it the wrong way. We interpret it in a way that fits with how we want to live. I think that um, the observation uh, of juxtaposing Psalm 19 and Romans 1 and the perspective of the writer in each case and what they are, I mean, they're both looking at the same creation, right? And they're they're yeah. both really looking at the same reality. They're just looking at, uh, or they're bringing a different perspective to bear on what is being declared. And so when we talk about the way that creation reveals God, so if we talk about the general revelation of God in creation, we are talking about both the way in which creation bears witness to the glory of God, but also when we look around how creation itself now bears witness to man's man's fall, because all creation fell when man fell. That that's right. And because of the fall, going all all the way back to the opening, you know, chapters of the Bible, um, because of that, we're all infected by this desire for moral autonomy. And so we're all, our relationship with the Creator is severed. And as a result, we're, you know, apart from God granting us forgiveness to where we're made right with Him, and we begin seeing the glory of God in creation, um, what happens is creation sending a message that's kind of like, you know, I like to think about it if you have an annoying background noise that just constantly is grating at you, um, Think of like a dentist drill or something like that, that you just wish that noise would be silenced. Well, if creation is sending a message about God and you don't want to hear it, then it, then you're going to try to suppress that, which is what Paul says, to find a way to tune it out. And I shared that in my message Sunday and had this wonderful conversation after the sermon. A couple came up and they were 
sharing with me how um, the the lady's dad had been an atheist for years and would be so irritated anytime that her or her husband tried to share the gospel with him. And then eventually one day, um, his whole attitude changed. He was willing to consider God, and then he eventually became a Christian. And But what what really made them come forward, I had quoted someone who said um, that there are two tenets to true atheism. One, there is no God, and two, I hate him. <laughs> and they came forward and said that was so true of our dad that he didn't believe in God and he hated him. And I think that the result of that is that the creation is sending this message they don't want to hear, and it's this annoying noise. You just want it to go away until uh, hopefully at some point you embrace it, and instead of seeing wrath, you see glory. Mm. That is all so helpful. All right, you guys need to check it out. Dan DeWitt has it posted um, at theolatte.com, the God of nature and the nature of God. I wanted to... um, tell you a nature story before we jumped into the question about is there such a thing as a Christian telescope? Because there's a kid out there. He's five years old. He's going to start kindergarten a week from today, and his name is Harvey. And if you um, have not yet heard about Harvey, Harvey has done something that my guess is, well, I know I haven't done it. Have you ever hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail? No. Okay, Harvey is five years old, and he has already done something that neither you nor I, well, I haven't even tried. So uh, 2,100 miles in 209 days. Um, oh Harvey, I know, Harvey is going to have, um, uh, you know, when first day of kindergarten next Friday, and they're like, oh, well, what did you do on your summer vacation? Harvey's going to be like, mm, I hiked the entirety of the Appalachian Trail. Yeah, it is this like testimony about frogs and lizards and wildlife and Skittles and peanut butter tortillas. Yeah, that's pretty much what's going on there. So Harvey lives in Portland, Maine, and I feel like um, his last name is Sutton. So Harvey Sutton, I just feel like you and Harvey should like co-author a book because <laughs> Harvey, I think Harvey's he, my hero. Right. <laughs> anyway, so uh, let's see. They started at Springer Mountain in Georgia. Um, and wow. they ended atop Maine's Mount Katahdin. Anyway, there you go. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So um, he's not the youngest, but most everybody who is younger than him was carried in a some sort of like buddy backpack. Uh, he that was is, not. Yeah. He yeah. he hiked he it himself. Credit. Yeah, totally. Um, so, Way to go, Harvey. Right? Way to go, Harvey. Um, because I wanted to share that with you, Dan, because first of all, I know that you love to do those kinds of things with your well, with your kids. And so I thought, you know, I just set that out there. I remember that Route 66 thing that you did a couple of summers ago. And so I thought, you know, I'm going to I'm going to tell Dan about Harvey's summer vacation. That was going to be my lead in, you know, like out into and out of the break, which we didn't take. So there you go. That was that was a substitute for the break that we're not taking. <laughs> um, Dan, is there such a thing as a Christian telescope? No, there's not. Although um, I posted this on Facebook and I had someone reach out and say, actually, um, in Dayton, Ohio, which is close to where I live, as you know, um, there used to be a denominational newsletter called the Religious Telescope. And so they said, so there kind of is. Um, but the reason I've, I framed it that way, I've got a, a number of resources um, and articles that are kind of about in the Weekend Worldview Reader this weekend. Um that are about the the relationship between faith and science. And this is a, you know, one of those kind of topics that's going to be a, with us until the end of time. Um, 
But I think sometimes it's helpful to think about this question. If science is a tool, um, Sir Francis Medawar, or Peter Medawar, rather, um, once described science simply as um, any the process of studying the natural world. Well, is Christianity at odds with studying the natural world? Well, of course not. So in that way, I like to for students to give them this example. Is there such a thing as a Christian hammer? If science is a tool, then is there such a thing as an atheist hammer? No. If, if it's a tool, then it's in how you use it. And so the answer to the question, is there such a thing as a Christian telescope? The answer is no, but there's also not an atheist telescope. So what you see through a telescope um, is basically—the the main thing is how you interpret it. It really comes back to what we were just talking about. And so in the, in the conflict between science and religion, what I want to encourage people with is that there isn't a conflict. There is a conflict in how people interpret what they see through a telescope or a microscope, but at the end of the day, we have to interpret the world around us, and as a Christian, we interpret it in a certain way, right? We see glory, and for someone who's committed to there not being a God, they're going to interpret it in a different way, but it's not the telescope's fault. Do we see different things depending on the telescope we're looking through. And, you know, there I think I'm trying to get at a worldview perspective question. Yeah. Um, so we, we see the same data points. I mean, although some people may, you know, be more committed to research or be more, you know, familiar with certain um, scientific studies. So there could be different data in, in the sense that we just haven't all looked at the same material. But ultimately, no, we, we are seeing the exact same thing. But we have to recognize that there's no such thing as a self-interpreting fact. Facts have to be interpreted. Data has to be interpreted. And that's one of the links I have is to an um, article at the Gospel Coalition this week that's about this very same topic. It's National Science Week in Australia, and so it's on um, TGC's website for Australia. And in that, the author makes a really good point that both the Bible— and nature have to be interpreted. And so when we think about the relationship between the Christian faith, founded on what God's revealed about himself in Scripture, and the relationship with science, how we understand the natural world, both things have to be interpreted. And so we could think about it this way. God has revealed himself in two books, the book of Scripture and the book of nature, and both books have to be interpreted. If they seem to be in conflict, it may be because my interpretation of nature is wrong— it may be because my interpretation of the Bible is wrong, or I could be wrong about both. <laughs> and so we have to be cautious of um, trying to be overly dogmatic, in particular where the Bible is not clearly making scientific statements, to rush in and say that this is clearly a statement about nature. And on the other hand, we have to be cautious about trying to always make Scripture fit scientific consensus, because that's a moving target. That term, scientific consensus, um, that's a that that seems to be a term thrown around today, as if, yeah, um, you know, those people are the experts, and so you dare not disagree with them. But there's a difference mm -hmm. between science and quote unquote expertise. Yeah, you know, John Lennox says it this way, and I, I I have a video from John Lennox and a book linking to John Lennox, who, for those who might not know, has, I think, three PhDs and has taught for years at the University of Oxford and um, is just a wonderful Christian man. 
But he puts it this way. He says that not every statement by a scientist is a statement of science. And so even that question, so thanks for pushing back, or that statement of scientific consensus is debatable. What exactly is that? Who actually is in, in agreement on that? And so we just have to be cautious. I think sometimes people are so intimidated by the scientific experts, whoever they might be, usually scientific consensus really means the person you're talking to and the opinion they happen to hold. And we use that as kind of a shield to hide behind. This is what all the experts think. Well, actually, experts usually differ on these things. That's just how it works. All right. If you're listening and you're saying to yourself, John Lennox, John Lennox, that name sounds a little bit familiar to me. We have had him on Um, The program, I'm thinking like mid-November of 2020, and then back when he wrote about where is God in a coronavirus world, I know we had him on in um, in May of 2020. So if you want to check out, you know, our archives related to John Lennox, um, he is a delightful person to talk with, and he has great videos posted online. So um, one of the things that that Dan has teed up for us this week in the Weekend Worldview Reader is this uh, is a book by John Lennox, God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Um, and there's a ton of other really great links in, um, in relationship to this question. Is there such a thing as a Christian telescope? Lots of really interesting, provocative conversation starters here for us, even as we read through the list of things that Dan has provided for us at Theolatte.com in the Weekend Worldview Reader. Um, as I looked through the list and as I read some of these pieces, uh, I thought that I thought to myself, you know, when we are preparing ourselves for conversations with with people who are, I'm going to use the word deconstructing their faith, yeah. you know, people who people who have, are saying, you know, almost like I'm too smart to be a Christian, like or you're, you know, there's a there's a smartness. There's a intelligence versus wisdom thing going on as well. Can you can you touch on that? Yeah, so I have a link to an article, Reconstructing Faith in a Deconstructing World, and it's by Charles Holmes, who's actually Charles is on um, pastoral staff with J.D. Greer, who you're going to have on today. And so um, what I would encourage people for—I've heard people say this since you mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier, that C.S. Lewis made it possible— for them to be an intellectually satisfied Christian. And what I think people mean by that, and I forget where I first heard that, is that, you know, C.S. Lewis was someone who was really smart, and John Lennox is a great example of this. Of course, I think Lennox is in many ways kind of the the best example of a C.S. Lewis in our time, um, is there are really smart people who believe in the Bible and the authority of Scripture. And so sometimes we assume that we have to somehow be intellectually inferior if we believe that God exists. Somehow we have to be dumb if we believe the Bible is reliable. And so it's helpful to see these people who are at the highest levels of academia, um, who are great examples for us. And it's also a reminder, you know, God doesn't want you to turn your brain off um, when you come to the Bible or to faith. You need to ask hard questions, and it's a reminder, too, that the gospel can handle it. It's, it's, the gospel's not intimidated or overshadowed by any rival truth claim. It, it's up to the task and has proven to, to be so for the last 2,000 years. And so if you're questioning, can I really believe this? Um, I remember the first apologetics book I, I read years ago as a teenager. It was by Josh McDowell, and the title was Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. 
And it was so helpful for me as a teenager to read that and go, you know, I, I don't have to turn my intellect off. Rather, my Christian faith enlivens my quest for truth. And um, so I would encourage you, if you're if you're really struggling with this notion that you're somehow inferior to others because you're a Christian, just know that some of the greatest thinkers in the history of science and, um, and, and have been people who believe in God and love God. I think of Kepler, who was a contemporary with Galileo, and Kepler said his science was merely thinking God's thoughts after him. So don't, mm. don't check your brains at the door. I love that. Dan DeWitt, that's a wonderful walk-off thought today. You guys can check it all out at theolatte.com. We'll be right back. All right, many of you uh, texted in, emailed in, looking for the text of uh, something that I read yesterday, and we're going to post it at MyFaithRadio.com on the Mornings with Carmen page as a part of a blog post. And so if you um, were looking for that, it um, it was a note that my husband received from a neighbor of ours. That neighbor, Jeremy of Seton, has given me his permission to publish it. He gave me permission to read it, and then... Uh, I have circled back around. We have permission to publish it. And so um, if you didn't hear it, you're going to want to read it. Um, or you could go listen to the podcast from yesterday's program at MyFaithRadio.com. Um, but for those of you looking for a hard copy of what I read yesterday, and it's not like I have a title for it. So uh, it's the it's the commentary about grief and the waves and the wreckage of life and how we hold on and how we um, eventually swim again. So if you're if you heard that and you are looking for a copy of it, it's going to be posted at myfaithradio.com on the Mornings with Carmen page. So just be watching for that. And again, you can grab the podcast from yesterday. Uh, it's already posted right there at myfaithradio.com. So thank you again. We're looking forward to Fall Share um, September 14 to 17. The theme is Believe. So Finish the statement, I believe. Finish the statement, I believe. Where does that lead you? We'll be right back. All right, I don't know about you. I haven't given much thought to the metaverse, but now I'm going to give some thought to the metaverse. Absolutely for sure. What verses of scripture come to mind as you consider the way that the invisible reality in which we engage by prayer and acknowledging our intimate connection to Christ who is the head, each one of us uh, abiding in Christ today. Like, how does that apply itself out here in the analog world of reality? See, I think that you and I can make those connections um, and we can help people wandering around in the wilderness of uh, this postmodern world. I think we can help them reconnect the eternal with the everyday. I think we can point to prayer. I think we can point to spiritual realities and say, you know what? Um, God's been uh, operating a metaverse reality way before you ever thought it up in the digital world. Uh, and, and I think that's helpful. So anyway, this might be something to noodle through today as you are making your way out there in the world that God so loves. Let's bring the eternal to bear on the everyday today. Let's help people reconnect with God. Uh, and if you have not yet recon- made that reconnection, let me invite you to do so. God is offering up his grace to you in ways that will be all sufficient. And all you have to do is turn to him. 
confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord. Um, and thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.